Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 29th, 2016. This is episode 1776 of the Survival Podcast. And since it is Friday, it's time for expert counsel questions and answers. Um, I have a good lineup set up for you today on that. Let me tell you what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, John Pugliano is going to handle a question about HELOCs, or home equity lines of credit, and does it ever make sense to use a HELOC to pay off a mortgage? Um, that's an interesting one, and it's something that's being marketed right now, so I'd love to hear from John on that and his thoughts on debt in general. Uh, next up, uh, Michael Jordan has a question about bees. That doesn't surprise you, but maybe the topic will. Bees invading the bird feeders. Yes, the guy has a bird feeder. And the doves waiting to come to the bird feeder are sitting on a branch looking down at the bird feeder wantingly as an entire swarm of bees envelops his bird feeder. And yes, this happens over and over again. He wants to know what may be causing that. Uh, we have a person with concerns about vaccines, especially uh, infant vaccines, uh, vaccines for children uh, when they're first years of life uh, from Doc Bones. And I'll tell you right now. Doc Bones and I do not agree. We absolutely do not agree on this. We agree some, but I think we actually disagree quite a bit. It'll be interesting to hear that. Uh, and that will take some of you that think I won't play things that I disagree with from people that I like, but I do. Uh, we also have a question for Tim Grants on 24-volt military ration heaters that are on the surplus market. Are they worth the money? Do they do a good job? Will they heat up your MREs? Are they capable of boiling water? And what happens when you try to convert them from 24 volts for a military vehicle to 12 volts for the vehicles we all drive? Tim will tell you what to do or not to do as far as that goes. Next up, we have a question for Shep Keith Snow on cooking large pieces of beef, like stuff you normally throw in a crock pot. What else might you do with that? It'll probably make us hungry. We have a two is one and one is none question on backup power for, for Stephen Harris. A unique angle to look at for that. And I'm going to answer a question about voting, not whether or not you should vote. You guys all know how I feel about that. You should do what you think is right. But should there be a certain option that's not currently on the ballot when it comes to voting? Interesting one, so I thought I'd throw it in today and take cleanup uh, position uh, in the batter lineup today. Before we do uh, all of this, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode in the year. Guys, 1776. We know what we're going to talk about today, don't we? I have a few for you today. I have the Ferguson Rifle is now patented mayhem. I have Independence Day, July 2nd, July 4th, or August 2nd. And then I have, in other news, Thomas Paine publishes Common Sense in the American Crisis. Edward, Edward Gibbon publishes The History and Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. And companies, mostly miners, are now buying a new Watt steam engine to pump water out of mines. That's something to think about, about technology evolving faster than I think maybe we give it credit for. All right, so I'm going to read, of course, Independence Day. What day is Independence Day? It's hard to say. On July 2nd, the Second Continental Congress votes for the independence from Britain. A few weeks ago, John Adams talked Thomas Jefferson in writing up a list of grievances to be submitted to King George III. There was no title given to the document. But they call it the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson didn't want the job, but like a game of musical chairs, he was caught standing when the music died. 
Jefferson had a gift for words, but after submitting his draft, the Congress makes a number of changes, mostly to the list of grievances. Each colony has its own list of concerns. Congress also objects to the obsequious language that Jefferson is using. It is an ancient tradition to address the king in a certain manner. The Congress brooms all that rubbish. Oddly, the Congress isn't paying attention to the flowery language at the beginning of the document. Finally, an approved copy is ratified on July 4th. The president of the Congress, John Hancock, signs his name with a flourish. According to tradition, that is, according to later hero-worshipping storytellers, he signs with a large signature so that King George can read the name without his spectacles. Spectacles are considered a weakness. When George Washington's officers threaten to rebel against the Second Continental Congress to enforce the promises made to them, Washington will pull out his glasses to read their complaint. He excuses his weakness, saying, Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. The military coup dies a morning. A morning means while being born, so it never got off the ground. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrugged. FYI, the Liberty Bell, along with all the bells in Philadelphia, rang on July 8th. Though we celebrate the independence of the United States on July 4th, the United States was considered a plural before the Constitution was ratified. Another copy of the document was made and signed on August 2nd by people who hadn't even been present for the original vote. Frankly, the document was an afterthought, a technicality required for its legal implications, and in most ways, performa. The United States, plural, were at war with the British Empire, and nothing in the Declaration was going to change that. And years later, the Declaration of Independence became a popular document, and its flowery language at the beginning continues to inspire generations. The most remembered lines were, is, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One wonders why Jefferson edited the sentence with pursuit of happiness. Anyone familiar with the philosopher John Locke will realize that the last few words could also be interpreted to mean the pursuit of self-interest, the pursuit of property. There is a lot implied there, but I'm not well-read enough to comment further. I will leave it as an exercise for the student. I actually think pursuit of happiness personally means exactly what it says. The pursuit of happiness. That we are to be free in our lives and have liberty and we are to be able to pursue the things that we love, that we want, that we desire. Sure, all of those other things, but the things that make us happy, to pursue them. The big thing is to pursue them. We're not guaranteed them. We're guaranteed only, or supposed to be guaranteed only, the ability to seek them, to attempt them, to prove them right or prove them wrong through our success and our failure. I think they're some of the finest words ever written, and they definitely continue to inspire me even to this day. Next up, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. 
Hey folks, have you ever wondered how I seem to know so much about so many things in the self-reliance industry? Well, one reason why is that I've been a loyal subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine for over 20 years. With great writers like Masada Yub, Jackie Clay, and Dave Duffy, they have it all. From homesteading to guns to libertarian views, along with a great website and forum. Check them out at BackwoodsHome.com to learn more. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first question today. This is, again, for John Pugliano. A uh, question about using a HELOC to pay off a mortgage, and when, if ever, does that actually make sense to do? Hello, TSP listeners. Rick has a question about home equity lines of credit and uh, specifically whether or not he should use a HELOC to pay off his mortgage. Before I talk about home equity lines of credit, let me first say that I'm not a debt hater like Dave Ramsey. I think that debt can be a useful tool, particularly when you're using to finance appreciating assets, like taking out a business loan to expand and grow your business, or to purchase your home when you're in an area where real estate is appreciating, or you're developing a homestead where you're adding value to that property through sweat equity or other types of improvements. So I don't think that debt in and of itself is evil. But I do think that in our society in general, debt is mostly used in an abusive manner and most people are carrying way too much debt. The other thing that I want to mention is that debt is debt, okay? It is simply when you owe someone else money. Now, you may owe money on your home to the bank in the form of a mortgage. You may owe money to the credit card company. You could owe debt in terms of a promissory note where you're leasing a vehicle or where you have a long-term contract with your cable provider or with your cell phone. You know, that's really all a form of debt as well. Now, we could argue the finer points of whether a lease or a cell phone contract is really a debt by true definition. But in practical terms, you're entering a contract and basically issuing a promissory note. So the way I look at it, it's debt. And again, all these aren't necessarily bad things, but what I want to point out is, and particularly as we start talking about this home equity line of credit, while it's very important to be fluent in financial vocabulary and to have an understanding of what all these different financial terms mean, sometimes it's also important just to cut to the chase, and get down to the bottom line, and simplify by calling things what they are. So when you look at debt as being simply debt, you can assess your overall financial health and really come to terms with what your debt burden actually is and how financially healthy you are. So whether you have a mortgage or whether you have credit card payments or whether you owe your brother-in-law money, the bottom line is it doesn't matter what you call it, it's all debt and you have to understand that this is an obligation that you've taken on and money that you owe. I bring all this up because rather than segregating debt by what it's called, you know, for example, whether it's called a payday loan or whether it's called a mortgage or a HELOC, if you just think of it in terms that it's debt, regardless of what kind it is, you want to focus on four things. Number one, what's the availability of the debt? And what I mean by that is that some forms of debt are harder to get than others. Generally, the easier the debt is to come by, the more expensive or the more it's going to cost you. So a payday loan or a company that's going to give you a loan based on holding your card title or some other type of a pawn shop operation, well, those loans may be readily available, but they're also very expensive. Same thing with credit card debt. Generally, it's easy to qualify for a credit card, but you're going to pay 18% for the privilege. So number one, think about availability, how easy it is to access the debt. Item number two is what is the interest rate of that debt? As I just mentioned, if you use a credit card debt for some unsecured type of loan, 
you're going to pay maybe 18 or 20 percent, where if you get a house mortgage, you may be able to get that for three or four percent. And then number three is very much related to that, and that's just the fees that are involved. Oftentimes, people only look at the interest rate, but make sure you read all the fine print. There are oftentimes a lot of fees associated with things. Should you miss a payment or if you want to pay something off early or if you make minimum payments or even just the overall transaction costs, for example, if you're refinancing a loan, you may find out that there's a significant transaction fee associated with that where although you're refinancing at a lower interest rate, maybe it's going to take you seven years to recoup the money that you paid for the refinancing fees. So the overall cost of the loan is very important. And then finally, the fourth item is the duration or the time frame of the loan. For example, most mortgages are maybe 15 or 30 years. But something like credit card debt is open-ended. And if all you're paying is the minimum fee, well, you might find yourself paying that in perpetuity and the principal of that debt never going down. So when you owe someone money, whether it's the mortgage on your home or a financing company or you just owe your brother-in-law money, four things you always want to consider. Number one, availability of the loan. Number two, the interest rate paid. Number three, the fees associated with it. And number four, the duration of the loan. Okay, Rick, now that we reviewed all those principles, let's get down to the bottom line of your question. Is a home equity line of credit a good idea, and should you use it to pay off your mortgage? Well, a HELOC is just another form of debt. In this case, you're using your home to secure a line of credit that you can borrow against. Well, is it a good idea or a bad idea? It depends on what you're using the money for, what your overall debt burden is. Like I just mentioned, though, debt is debt. And the only reason that you would want to consolidate debt or move debt around from one form to another is if it's advantageous for you in one of those four areas that we just talked about. Now, most people will use a HELOC because they can borrow that money at a lower rate of interest. So, for example, maybe you could qualify and borrow $75,000 on a HELOC at 2% interest, and then apply that $75,000 to the principal payment on your mortgage, which you're paying 4% on. And so in that example, in your first year of payments, since you're prepaying the principal on your home mortgage, you'd save about $1,500 the first year. So is it a good idea? Well, remember, there's some other things I talked about, like not only what interest rate are you paying, but also what other fees are associated with it. So you'll have to look at those and take that into consideration. The biggest red flag or warning that I'd tell you about a HELOC is that most of them that I'm aware of, your interest rate is variable. Now, that may not be true in your case. You're going to have to check with your local bank or credit union, but you want to be very cautious about taking on large sums of debt over a long period of time on something like a mortgage when the loan is based on a variable interest rate. That's a hard lesson that a lot of people learned in 2008 and 2009 when the tickler rates that they used to justify buying a home were suddenly raised and they found out that they just couldn't afford to make the interest payments and they also didn't qualify to refinance for something that they could afford. So that would be my biggest concern. And then finally, Rick, I'd also caution you to just proceed with caution with something like this. Make sure you really know what you're getting into. A lot of times it isn't that these things don't work or that they're schemes or something like that. It's just that are they really worth the headache that's involved to save a few thousand dollars? And I'll bring up Dave Ramsey again because I sort of slammed him at the beginning of my comments here. I really like what Dave Ramsey has to say about the psychology of paying off your debt. You know, when you look at his debt snowball payments, he doesn't take an MBA or an accountant's approach and say that you should start by paying off your debts that have the highest interest rate associated with them. That's what an accountant would do. 
But Dave Ramsey looks at it from a psychological standpoint and tells you to pay off the smallest debt first and then take that money and roll it into the next smallest debt and pay that one off. From a purely mathematical standpoint, that may not be the most optimum way to knock off the debt because you may not be paying off those high interest rate loans first. But as Dave Ramsey points out, and as I believe, you're much more likely to become debt-free faster by paying off those smaller debts first because you feel successful and you know that you're whittling down that debt and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel that way. I'm a firm believer that getting out of debt and more importantly building wealth is a lot more about lifestyle and human nature than it is about balance sheets and profit and loss statements. Rick, thanks for your question. If you'd like to hear more about my wealth building principles or my commentary on the stock market, be sure and check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, a huge non-fan of variable interest rates. I, I don't care how low they are. The fact that they're variable means they could change. Right now, on short-term debt, I, I think the risk could be very, very minimum. So when I say... Uh, short-term debt, I'm talking five years or less. Um, because even if you had an interest rate hike, you know, at three, four years, your, your principal has, has been so brought down at that point, it wouldn't be that big of a hit overall. But a large num sum of money on a house uh, and something that people generally take a long time to pay back, you can get hurt. The other thing is the going to a shorter-term variable rate in any form of debt, no matter what you call it, You put yourself in a position where if you're going to pay more money in the, you know, month to month, if you were doing that on the overall loan and just paying it off faster, your savings is dwindled even further. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't, I'll put it this way. I could certainly do exactly what was questioned right now. I could go acquire a HELOC. I could pay off the house and transfer the debt to a HELOC at a lower interest rate. I'm not going to do it. I mean, I think that's kind of the most honest advice you can give. If it was me, would I do it? Nope. Nope. I also like what John had to say about Dave Ramsey. Here's how I feel about Dave Ramsey. When it comes to elimination of debt, Dave Ramsey is the man. When it comes to investing advice, Dave Ramsey is not the man. Anybody giving advice in this day and age, just buy good quality mutual funds and hold them and don't worry about it, that is not a person to be listening to about money when it comes to the investing side. But the psychology of winning with money by the elimination and control and management of debt uh, is, is definitely Dave's strength, and he does a really good job with it. Next up, what about invasion of the bees on the bird feeders? Michael Jordan, what the heck's going on? Well, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here, taking your questions on bees apiary management, and mead making. Welcome back again to the Survival Podcast. This question comes from Aaron, a.k.a. Lighthorse, on the Zello Network. If you've never been on Zello, you should check it out. Uh, they share a lot of good information, and it's a good thing for emergency response that when things go out, you can activate and get a hold of different people in different areas to get information. So check out the Zello Network. Uh, Light Horse lives in upstate New York. Uh, she states the nights are still getting pretty cold, but they're starting to have some days of warm weather. On those nice days, the bees from the neighbor's honey operation swarm to the bird feeders, chasing off the birds and make her have to use the back door to get into the house. She fills the feeders with standard economy feed mix for the feeders with no fruit or anything added special. 
wants to know, what are the bees so interested in? Well, Aaron, I'm not sure uh, what you're talking about, if they're hummingbird feeders or grain feeders. Uh, just to let you know, both uh, bees love. They love the hummingbird feeders the most. Uh, the sugar from the hummingbird feeders is an easy treat for them. It makes a good open wild forage for them because of how the little petals and stuff on them, like the, like they look like flowers that the nectar's in. But also grain feeders, uh, when used during wet seasons, bring out the sugars of the grain. Uh, and also some of the powder makes a protein that they can gather almost like pollen. Uh, many grain silos have bees and other insects that will feast on the sugars that come during the wet seasons. So when the grains are getting finer and they're getting a little bit wider, the sugar residual is coming out and the bees are going for it and they're collecting some of the little grain modules back as if it was pollen to take back to make bee bread. Now, if you want them to stop, you know, you need to remove the feeders for five days and relocate them to a new location before refilling them. The bees will move on due to morning flight orientations. Right now, there's not a lot of floral that the bees can get to, and bees love diverse sugars. In fact, you know, if there's not a lot of floral out, you can see them around trash cans and a lot of fast food centers with soda fountains because they can get to the soda because it has a, or pop, I'm not sure what location of the world you're in, but the sugars from uh, those carbonated drinks and stuff, the bees like. They're more than likely getting food now from just that location and they're probably just getting fed uh, whatever the keepers feeding them so they will look all over for food sources that they can find and gather any type of nectar flow or any type of sugar until the floral comes up now um, I usually keep an eye on like my grains for my quail because the bees will hide in the feeders uh, taking up the proteins and the particulars so that's another thing to kind of look for when you move the feeders that they might find another location because if there's no floral they'll do that so that's basically what they're looking for is a sugar source so if, if you want them to move on and do other things you'll have to move those feeders stop feeding them and let them do another flight orientation now I can tell you can build bee, build bee feeders so they will get food and kind of move away from those feeders and that way your birds can come right back um, a good bee feeder is to take a mason jar with one cup of sugar and one cup of water, shaking it well. You turn this mason jar upside down on a pie tin. So you just put your pie tin on top of the jar and flip it over. And then uh, add marbles around the mason jar on the pie tin. Uh, the liquid not, will not overflow out of the pie tin. It's kind of like how the dog feeders and the water feeders are for your animals and pets. that It just kind of seeps out. But what happens is the marbles will let the bees land in and out without draining in the sugar water. So this is another way to kind of get them fed without them attacking your bird feeders. That if you set those things out, they'll more inclined to go to those because it's going to get an easier uh, sugar source for them than hitting the granules and stuff out of your bird feeders. So that's basically what I can tell you about why they're going for your bird feeders, kind of how to solve the problem, and how to introduce another open feeding mechanism for the bees. Remember, place this stuff away from your house or your building. Kind of get it out in an open space that's, you know, where you're not working. Because the bees will find this source, and yes, they'll run about anything off. 
And if you're going into where they're feeding and stuff, they will get agitated and they will chase you down a little bit. You know, try to get it high enough where cats, dogs, and things that you like won't get into it because they will get stung during the feeding process because, as you've probably seen, they're overtaking the feeders. That They're probably piled up. It looks like maybe you've got a swarm that you could catch, but it never really grows. It usually stays about the size of a baseball, a little bit bigger, and they're just feeding and feeding and feeding. But those are some tips I can kind of help you with. Uh, if you have any more questions from your Zello people, go ahead and get them to Jack. Uh, happy to answer them. Uh, there's been some great questions that have come out of the Zello people when I've been on their, their network. And there's always been some great questions here on the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, I hope your bees are doing good now with your location and uh, moving them to your new spot over by your pond. I can't wait to come see him in November. It's one of my favorite times and one of my favorite things to go to is down to your place in November for your end of year, year event. So I'm looking forward to seeing what Jason's done uh, for your location. But once again, I am Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry because we all had to start someplace. And always help your fellow man for one day. You may need help, too. I have to say, over the years, I've been amazed at what bees will uh, go after. Uh, we had a, a bag of conventional uh, feed one time before I went to Texas Naturals Feed that I left open in the garage, and it was swarming with bees. And funny enough, they don't really swarm the Texas Naturals. So there must be a cheap carbohydrate uh, that's in uh, a conventional feed that's not in the Texas Naturals. It's not like they're completely disinterested in it, but it's nowhere near the same amount of interest. I also tend to grow a lot of sorghum every year in my swale uh, berms because it's a fast-growing annual crop that the birds like, the, the ducks and geese like. And in the summer, when it gets really hot uh, and the sun hits the leaves of the sorghum plant, some of that thick sorghum syrup actually exudates itself on the leaf and it makes like a varnish like the leaf looks shiny and it's basically the plant giving itself a sunscreen is is what that plant's actually doing it's, it's allowing some of its sugars to come out and make a coating on the leaves and i've seen the bees land on those leaves and feed on that that sugar exudate off of the leaves i've also seen them we have these little things called gall wasps uh in our live oak trees in texas they have these little balls that form all over live oak trees and about september Right before that little wasp is about to come out and do its thing, uh, which is pretty much make more wasps and die, uh, so that they can have galls next year, those, those little balls exudate sugars, and the bees will swarm the oak trees. And people you know, will call all of the bee people around here freaking out because they think they have swarms. Well, bees don't swarm in September. All it is is huge amounts of bees feeding. So it, it's amazing what they will use, especially at times when they don't have plenty of other things. Uh, next one is for Doc Bones. This is a question on vaccines and infant vaccination schedules and stuff. And at the end of it, I have some questions for my good friend, Dr. Bones, because I do not completely agree with his take on this. Hey, this is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 800 articles, podcasts, videos, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook and the upcoming Zika Virus Handbook. All sorts of stuff going on. This week's expert counsel question comes from Jeff C., who writes, 
We're eight weeks from welcoming our daughter into the world. Wow, that is awesome. Congratulations. And we do vaccination, but we like to delay them. Could Doc Bones or anyone else appropriate weigh in on vaccination schedules and what might not be needed? Obviously, the flu shot is a scam. I've also read that some vaccines contain DNA from aborted fetuses and other animals. Any way to avoid getting a manufacturer that uses ingredients like that? I guess I'd have to research each shot separately and see, but any help is appreciated. Jeff, congratulations on the upcoming blessed event and my best wishes for a long and healthy life for her and the rest of your family. I have to say I'm asked to discuss this very controversial subject on a pretty regular basis and never fails to cost me 500 followers on whatever social media platform it's discussed on on either side of the fence. A new study shows that more than 70% of children's doctors agree to parents' requests to delay vaccination. So it is a possibility that you can do this, talk to your pediatrician. Even though most pediatricians will tell you, or they believe at least, that puts children at risk to delay vaccinations. Most parents have begun skipping selected vaccines or delaying others in recent years. This is a pretty common occurrence nowadays, some due to a concern about a connection with autism. This particular deal, to me, is horse feathers. And if you don't believe me, check out my article, MMR Vaccine and Autism, over at doomandbloom.net, for some hard data and some alternative causes that I put forth that you might not have thought of. A recent University of Louisville study, by the way, agrees with me. Now, some parents worry that children get too many vaccines too soon, so they ask their doctor to space out shots rather than administer several at once. Doctors who agree to delay vaccinations say they hope to maintain trust with patients or avoid having parents leave the practice. Certainly, vaccinations is a loaded topic these days. Yet the truth is the vaccinations are given at a particular time for a reason, because it's at that age your kid is most likely to come down with the disease. And vaccines are meant as prevention, not treatment, right? There's no hard evidence that children are more likely to have a reaction to a vaccine if they get it when they're younger. There's rarely any use to giving a vaccine after a kid gets the disease, so you probably should stick relatively closely to the normal vaccination schedule. Now, I never received the chickenpox vaccine. I finally got infected with the disease at age 16, and it almost killed me, and I mean it. The older you are, when you get some of these childhood diseases the more severe they might get. And with less people vaccinating their kids, the herd is not as immune as it used to be. And so therefore we're going to see, and we are already seeing, increases in cases of measles and other kinds of childhood diseases that we thought we had eradicated. Flu shots, well, they're variable in their success from year to year. In 2015, the shot was pretty good, giving about 60% or so protection against flu virus infections. In 2014, however, it was terrible and gave only about 19% protection for those receiving the vaccine. Most flu vaccines are recommended for those at risk. Those people are usually the elderly. This is not a big issue for you. You're obviously not elderly if you're having babies. About aborted babies in vaccines. Vaccines developed by Merck and GlaxoSmithKline for rubella, German measles, uh, hepatitis A, uh, chickenpox, these indeed do have a culture of human fetal cells that were taken from the lungs of one or two fetuses aborted in Europe, and guess when that was? In the 1960s. 
If you've had one of these vaccines, German measles, hepatitis A, or chickenpox, after 1962, guess what? You have had a vaccine processed with this material. Now, the vaccine itself doesn't contain fetal cells, though. The cells are just a culture which is used to grow the viral proteins that are used to make the vaccine. So aborted babies are not put in a blender and then put into a vaccine. That doesn't happen, nor is any recently aborted fetal tissue used. So that's something that I think people need to know. As for animal tissue, many vaccines use chicken eggs in their manufacture. There's that. So chicken eggs are indeed in there, in most of them. Is it possible that your child can get an adverse reaction to a vaccine? Yes, it absolutely is, but it's rare for it to be anything life-threatening. Many vaccines will cause redness at the injection site, will cause a fever, some other symptoms. Usually they go away in a few days. Weigh that against the effects of polio, smallpox, bacterial meningitis, and some other diseases that pre-vaccine paralyzed or killed many thousands of children, and the scales tip towards giving the vaccines around the time that you should. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Oh, hey, you would do us a great honor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our Facebook pages at Joe Alton, MD, Doom and Bloom, or Survival Medicine, and on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. And don't forget our two podcasts, the classic Survival Medicine Hour, and our new current events podcast, American Survival Radio. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. And thanks for listening. So I have been accused many times of being an anti-vaxxer. Okay, I'm not. I do believe that the vaccines, many specific vaccines individually, are medically effective. I think that their rate of side effects is probably lower than the anti-vax crowd would say they are. But I don't think they're non-existent. I don't think that they're entirely safe. I don't think that the quantity given to newborn children makes any sense at all. So here's a couple questions that I would have for Doc Bones, and I'd love to hear his answers for them. What possible reason, what possible reason is there to give an infant child a hepatitis B, vac hepatitis B vaccine, number one? Uh, number two, uh, Dr. Hooker, who worked for the CDC, came out, quite a while ago, and said that the CDC knew as early as 2003 that there is a causal link between autism and vaccinations, with, specifically with the MMR. He actually worked inside there and was told to keep his mouth shut and risked his, his life, his credentials, his career, his reputation to come out and say, hey, they know this, and specifically that it had a higher incidence among African-American males. Have you looked into this research Have you verified or uh, proven wrong this claim? And why are there multiple people now who come out from directing, either working either contractually or directly with the CDC saying there are known links to these things in vaccinations? Next, my next question would be, if autism is not a potential side effect of the MMR vaccine, Why is it listed as a potential side effect in the vaccine insert by the manufacturer for the MMR vaccine? Okay? So that's, that's an interesting question in of itself. Next would be, given that encephalitis is listed as a known side effect in almost every vaccine, 
almost every vaccine by almost every vaccination manufacturer encephalitis listed and known and accepted as a potential side effect. Do you not believe that swelling of the brain in a developing child could alter the child's mental development and may result in something you would find on the autism spectrum disorder? Is that not possible? Next, how do you explain the multiple incidences of children who were developing completely normally and after a round of vaccines immediately took a turn for the worst and never recovered? There are so many documented cases of this now that it is impossible to say there's no connection whatsoever. Now, here's what I think. I think when people are doctors, they spend their whole life in the medical profession and they trust science, in quotes. Um, but it doesn't matter. You can't trust science if the science is not honest. And just because it's science doesn't make it honest. And we have seen way too many things come out. And way too many people come out for no gain. People that had good lives, making good incomes, that could have went on the rest of their lives and been just fine, and have risked major, major you know, defamation, attack, etc. because they've told the truth. People don't generally come out and do something like that unless they believe in what they're doing because there is no real upside for them. So let me tell you what I think about vaccines, what I think really is going on here. I don't think that this is some plot by the Gates Foundation to sterilize half the planet like Alex Jones or something else like that. I think that, that real doctors and real scientists do the very best they can to make the best vaccines they can, and in general, they believe in what they're doing. They absolutely do. I believe that they know that there are side effects and sometimes very, very severe side effects, but those numbers are low. But when you're vaccinating a population of 300 million, a low number results in a lot of damage. That's what I think. Because I can do math. And if I can do math, then I can figure out that a small percentage of 300 million is still a shitload of people. I think there are a lot of people running around with severe reactions to vaccines that could be manifested as autism or other problems. And I think there might be a very much larger number with mild symptoms due to complications with vaccine. Okay? I think that the government knows this. I think that the researchers know this. I think the CDC knows this. And I think the drug manufacturers absolutely know this. I do not think the overplot is nefarious, let's kill them all. I think what it is, is they're afraid that you're too stupid to make your own decisions if they're flipping honest with you. And I'd love to actually have my good friend, Doc Bones, on for a debate about this. Clearly, academically, I'm outgunned, but I think from a standpoint of knowledge of how many things have been released, maybe, maybe, just maybe, Doc, maybe, because you are so confident in the medical establishment, you actually haven't really examined the other side of the equation. And maybe 1% of people that are being given these injections are being, well, screwed up majorly. And that results in hundreds of thousands to millions of people throughout our country. And that maybe, just maybe, we were better off in the 1980s with the vaccination schedule we had then than the vaccination schedule we have now, where we vaccinate for everything and anything. Over and over and over and over and over again. Those are my thoughts. I'm not mad at Bach. I'm mad at the lies that are so pervasive that intelligent men will accept them just because they're formatted in the way that they expect to see them. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on military ration heaters. These things run on 24 volts, and uh, the only person I could think of that I would know, you know, know anything about these would be Tim Glantz from Old Grouch Military Surplus. Um, I've never seen one. 
until now, until somebody asked about them. Tim, what's up with these things? Hey, Jack and all the TSP listeners out there. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus uh, with a question here about them 24-volt military electronic ration heaters. Now, I'll tell you the first thing about these. Um, I was in the Army for 22 years, drilling, deployments, everything. I never actually saw one of these issues, but I've seen them all over the surplus market. There's probably a reason for that. But uh, the question is that uh, he said he's heard of them being retrofitted by people to take a cigarette plug and run on 24 volts, uh, uh, although he doesn't know how feasible that would be. And do they get hot enough to warm up freeze-dried meals like Mountain House? Well, first thing, I did look and I did find where people are wiring these up on 12 volts. However, if you run a heating element designed for 24 volts on 12 volts, it will get warm. It will not get as hot as it will on 24 volts. That's just the way it works. Uh, so you're going to be pulling a lot of amperage, and you're not going to get that much heat. And these heaters were originally designed to bring an MRE up to a good temperature to make it uh, more palatable, make it uh, easier to eat. Uh, so you didn't have to use the flameless ration heater, the old MRE heater that off-gases fumes inside a vehicle. It is not designed to cook anything. And uh, so you're going to get even less heat rather than on 12 volts. And to answer the second question, do they get hot enough to warm up freeze-dried meals like Mountain House? No. They will not boil water. And virtually all of your freeze-dried meals have on an instruction, add boiling water. Um, for what they are, you know, I've seen them sold as low as 25 bucks. I've seen them as high as 125. If you have a 24 volt vehicle and you just need to warm things and you can pick it up for under 40 bucks, it'll probably do it. If you're planning to use it on 12 volts, there are already purpose made 12 volt appliances out there, uh, that can do it better and, uh, cheaper. Look at uh, any truck stop, and you'll see them, or you can find them on Amazon. I'll include a link here for Jack for one of my favorite ones for, for actually boiling water. But the uh, you're better off getting one of the ones that's made for uh, truck drivers and people that spend a lot of time in their vehicles uh, to use if you need to use it off 12 volts off a cigarette lighter plug. And even then, you need to check your vehicle and make sure that your cigarette lighter is rated for the kind of amperage that these require. Some of them are, some of them aren't. And you might want to uh, direct wire a fused uh, straight wire to a, uh, a different 12-volt outlet in your vehicle if you really plan to do some heavy use on these. Because uh, you can get a 12-volt hot pot or a 12-volt uh, water boiler. Uh, my favorite one that I'm sending the link to is is actually a very popular product uh, in Europe and England and some places where they drink a lot of tea so they can make tea on the go. Uh, you can get a little 12-volt stove or oven. Uh, they, they even make a 12-volt uh, crock pot or slow cooker. Uh, all those would be better choices than trying to take one of these 24-volt ones and run it on 12 because it really is a purpose-built, made thing that was just designed to heat MRE pouches. I mean, you can shove a tin can in there and it'll heat it, but uh, same thing. If you can get a purpose-made 12-volt one that'll do the same thing cheaper, then uh, that's the way I'd go. Hope that helps, and uh, 
I hope you check out some of the links there and uh, see how those will work for you. Thanks a lot. And everybody, uh, you can always find me if you have any questions on my website at oldgrouch.com. Okay, just a real quick uh, heads up on the power issue with the uh, the cigarette lighter electric kettle that Tim at Old Grouch recommended. It is uh, rated for two power. You can run at 80 watts or 120 watts. Um, about 125 watts is about all you're going to pull through any 12-volt receptacle. Like, the, the, it has a cigarette-style plug-in. That's just about it. Um, so you're at the upper end with the 120, but you, you can either run it at 80 or 120. So the 120 did faster. So it should work. That should work in anybody's vehicle. It should be not, not a problem whatsoever. But just for those of you that have bigger vehicles and you know, diesel trucks like me with two great big batteries in them and all, and think, well, I can run anything through there. I'm sorry. You can't. That type of connection has a limit of about 125, 130 watts. That's it. And it's going to it's going it's to be fused. And, it, and you try to pull more through it, and it's going to pop that fuse. That's why if you take something like a 400-watt uh, inverter, and instead of connecting it to your battery, you plug it into your cigarette lighter, and you run a couple little things on it, and it runs just fine. But you try to push that up you know, to 200 watts of draw or something like that, and it goes pop, and it pops that, 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 uh, that fuse in your vehicle. Just so uh, we're clear on that one. Uh, going on from there, question for Keith Snow on, uh, you know, like big cuts of meat like pot roast and doing something with them other than throwing them in a crock pot and tossing in a packet of onion soup mix. Go ahead and take it away there, Keith. Hey, Brian, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. I want to address your question about roasting meats and what else you can do with them. Now, uh, you mentioned something about a, a typical crock pot roast beef with an onion soup mix. Now, dude... I want you to um, <laughs> I want you to graduate from that into some other things. Now, you, grilling and smoking are interesting um, ways. Now, grilling a large roast—that's a tough one, man. Grilling is is definitely not for large roasts, but smoking—that's another thing. And a lot of people um, that get into smoking generally start with you know Boston butts, pork butts, pork shoulder. They do pulled pork, and then they get a little fancier, and they'll get into some ribs. Um, and then maybe they'll do a beef brisket as they kind of move up the ladder, so to speak, in the in the smoking and um, barbecue realm. Now, uh, I'm sure Jack will like to hear this, but you know, in the Carolinas where I've spent a lot of time and I am now, pork is everything. Now, you, you'd be hard pressed to find um, any brisket. As a matter of fact, we were down in Georgia. Um, I don't know the first of the year, and there's a there's two barbecue joints in this one little town. And one of them was advertising some brisket, and, and we had it, and it was it was nasty, not good at all. Just they don't have any business doing brisket like that. Compared to the joints around Austin, Texas, and in different places in Texas, they understand the brisket and you know slow cooked beef like this, and and it's definitely um, it's a science and an art form. Now, if you are interested in taking larger cuts of meat and smoking them. There's really nothing overly complicated about it. I mean, the first thing you need to do is go to Amazon.com, of course, and buy my low and slow barbecue, even though it's not called that anymore. It's Carolina barbecue or Texas beef and brisket because that's terrific on uh, on smoked meat. But 
any spices usually will do. But the point is this. When you cook this, you're looking for a temperature, just shoot for about 250 degrees. And it doesn't really matter what the cut is, whether it be a brisket, even a chuck roast uh, uh, will work well. Now, there's uh, some cuts are tougher, you know, like a... Let me just think of one. You know, a, a chuck has a lot of fat, a lot of connective tissue. That tends to cook a little easier. Brisket's a little little denser. You get something like an eye round. Things from the, the back of the animal tend to be uh, tougher. Now, any type of meat like that, if you cook it long enough, low and slow, you'll get to a point where you'll be able to pull it and uh, shred it or just make it so you can slice it super easily. And that is a wonderful way to, um, to, to deal with this. Now, just for instance, let's just say you have a chuck. Um, you can rub it with spices and cook it until it's ready to pull apart. And that's generally going to be in the neighborhood. I can't tell you the hours. I don't know how big your meat is. Um, no jokes about that guy. Big your cut of beef is. That's what I meant. Um, you need to cook that thing a good long time, and you're looking for a temperature of about 200 degrees. Because once you get an internal temperature of about 200 degrees, then you'll be able to pull this apart. And one thing that's terrific is when you take chuck like that and you season it up with some great barbecue spices, and you slow cook it until it's ready to pull apart. Get yourself an onion roll and you put a pile of that on there, maybe with some, I don't know, caramelized onions and you could put a slice of cheddar cheese and maybe some horseradish cream. That makes a sandwich that's heavenly, absolutely heavenly. And again, back east here in the south, it's those pulled pork sandwiches that you see everywhere. And they're, I mean, I'm going to offend people. They're okay. I mean, they don't really tickle my fancy that much. I mean, I've made plenty of them myself. I've tried plenty of them. Um, but the beef has just an inherent beefiness that, that for me is a little better. So that's a great way to try some beef. Um, but if you wanted to go completely crazy and, and not do um, anything on the grill and you want a new way to cook something and you take something like an eye roast, you can, um, or eye of the round, that's something, have you ever tried sauerbraten? Now, this is a German preparation that's really interesting. And it's basically where you take the meat and you'll put it in um, a brine and it's going to be some water and um, a lot of different things goes in go into a sauerbraten brine, but it's got things like juniper berries, bay leaves, uh, cloves. It's got that kind of, you know, floral Christmassy thing going on. And it soaks in there about seven days and then it's cooked. Um, you know, just it's braised for a good long time. But this isn't cooked to an internal temperature to where it can be pulled, but it is cooked to where it can be sliced. So it's sliced, and then the gravy for that is a really wonderful thing. And um, my mother-in-law happens to be from Bavaria, and she makes it really. Unfortunately, she's getting a little older, and she hasn't made it in a few years. But um, it's so good, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And it comes with a rich gravy, and in the gravy is um, gingerbread cookies, and they're kind of ground up and cooked in there. And it's got this flavor that's, uh, I mean, you really need to enjoy a florally, Christmassy, festive-type flavor. But a sour broughton of beef is a really tremendous thing. And uh, that, that's something I would, if you've got access to a lot of cuts of beef, like you mentioned in your question, that's something I would do a little research on and, and be willing to try. But I think I gave you some ideas to get away from that sort of crock pot onion thing.
thing. I, I hope it helped you, and uh, I greatly appreciate all of you calling in these questions. And uh, Jack, thanks for what you do, and everybody out there in TSP land, have a great weekend. I'm out. Good stuff from Keith, as always. Um, let's now take a question for Stephen Harris on two is one and one is none thinking when it comes to backup power, inverters, cars, all different types of stuff like that. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. This is a question I got from James in Southern California, and I'm just going to read his question and answer it as I go. From James. Question for Stephen Harris about selecting a good small car for use as an emergency home generator. We currently have a single car and a Xantrex ProWatt 2000 watt inverter for emergency power. Since two is one and one is none, I guess I'm only halfway to having backup power. So a question about a car selection. Well, let me stop right there. Two is one, one is none. It's just not like about having two of the same thing. Uh, it can be, but a better two is one, one is none example is let's say you got a big lighter for starting a fire. Okay, you now have one. Now let's say you got a magnesium fire starter with a ferro-seranium rod in it. There is your two is one, one is none, because you got Two completely different methods of starting a fire. One's a big lighter, which can get wet and won't start unless you uh, start a flame, unless you dry it out. And the other one is the magnesium ferro-seranium rod, which can get completely soaked and still work, but it's harder to start a fire with it than it is just by flicking your big lighter. So that's the real idea behind two is one, one is none, is having two completely separate ways of doing something rather than just having two big lighters, because if both big lighters got wet, then it, one of them, well, they both wouldn't work. Of course, if you had one big lighter in your fire starting kit and you had another one that was vacuum sealed, then that would be a, a divergent two is one, one is none. So that's what I want you to keep in mind when you're thinking about this. So he continues, would a hybrid car perform any better than a regular car for purposes of emergency power? For all those of you wondering about the battery in a hybrid car, it is completely dead-ass useless to you in an emergency situation. It's like a 300-volt battery. You can't do a damn thing with it. You can't modify it. If you try to F with it, you're likely to electrocute your ass and end up dead, D-E-A-D, dead. So don't F with the battery in a hybrid electric vehicle. Now, there is also a 12-volt battery in a hybrid electric vehicle like the um, the Toyota. So what happens with the Toyota is you push the on button to turn the car on. You attach your inverter to the battery in the Prius. And what happens is you're running off of the battery in the Prius, the 12-volt battery, not the big battery. And your inverter runs in a power stuff in your, in your house. Now, when the Prius is on and it sees the 12-volt battery has gotten depleted, it turns on the engine automatically to recharge the 12-volt battery which is pretty cool. And when the 12-volt battery is recharged, it turns itself off, which is pretty cool. So that's the advantage of a hybrid car and about the only advantage of a hybrid car. 
So he has some more important things in here that I want to read to you. We have a three-car garage with room for a second car, which would be nice to have for those times when my wife and I have a scheduling conflict. We've gotten by for years. Listen to this, people. We've gotten by for years with a single car and have used Uber strategically to address conflicts, spending less on Uber per month than a low-end car payment. I have budgeted $40,000 cash eyeing a used Lexus I-350. $40,000. My 2014 8,000-pound, 8-foot bed, 4-door, Dodge diesel with 60,000 miles didn't cost anywhere near $40,000, not even close. And that's a real working vehicle that will do work for you. And I don't know, I just can't see spending $40,000, let alone $40,000 cash on a vehicle that's a secondary vehicle for transportation. If you can get by and spending, well, with your budget, let's say if you can get by and spend less than $300 a month on Uber, you are going to be banking money and saving money and staying the hell out of debt and keeping extra cash for yourself for the times when you need it. I I can, if you can get by with Uber, buddy, do it, okay? Because I'm going to address your two as one, one as none for your car shortly. Hey, if I'm buying a, a nice-to-have car, I'd really like it to be a nice car, you know, really nice. But honestly, I don't care that much about the vehicle type, and nothing on the market really wows me. Then why do you want to spend $40,000 on a Lexus? But some options I've considered with a garage-imposed 15-foot maximum vehicle length or 13 or foot or less would be better. Well, then you can't have my Dodge truck. It's too too long. Smart car, uh, due to its small size, uh, it leaves more garage space open for uh, preps and small pickup trucks. Listen, people, I was an engineer for Chrysler for 10 years, and I loved trying to squeeze myself into crashed vehicles. You know, vehicles that we intentionally crashed, they'd be parked in the back parking lot, and I'd try to squeeze into them after they were crashed to see what it would be like for me if I was in an accident. You have to be brain dead, effing stupid, retarded to buy a smart car. It is a death trap. It is probably worse than riding a motorcycle. Just go on Google and Google smart car accidents. There is no crush zone, no crumple zone. The passenger cabin gets completely destroyed, and you get completely crushed, mangled, separated, delimbed, gutted in a crash with a smart car. And I'm serious. All those things I just mentioned are in the pictures, so don't go Google it unless you got a, a good stomach. Uh, you go on to say at least more garage space for other preps. You got a three-car garage. You got plenty of space for preps. Small pickup truck would be nice to have some hauling capacity. Yes, I agree. Small pickup truck would be good for small hauling capacity. However, with the limited miles that you would drive in your second car, if you got yourself a used $10,000 pickup truck with 80,000 miles on it, I'd say you'd be probably pretty good because you're not going to be putting many miles on it and just thus wearing it.
So let's see. Um, note, I do have natural gas service here at the house. Should I just chuck the whole idea of a second car for backup power and go with a purpose-built natural gas generator? Hell yes. That is your two is one, your one is none. I got a natural gas generator to power my house, and if it fails, I got the car to power my stuff. That is really two is one, one is none. Since you have a $40,000 cash budget, I might suggest that you just go and get a whole house natural gas generator. They'll cost between three and $6,000 installed. And that way, when the power fails, your entire house is powered by the natural gas generator. Or you can go with a generator that's gasoline and natural gas. That's your, your standalone generator. And you can have a natural gas line run to it so you can hook it up outside like you would a natural gas barbecue. And let that, with extension cables, power stuff in your house. And if your natural gas fails, which in most of the country it won't, but since you're in Southern California, an earthquake zone, they do shut off the natural gas in case of an earthquake. You might have to find yourself running on backup gasoline. If you want to know how to store safely a bunch of gasoline, then get my fuel and fuel storage class at Stephen, sorry, at solar1234.com. He continues to say, thanks, Jack. I love the show on FYI. I definitely have used the member discounts to more than pay for my subscription. So another happy MSB person. Well, I hope I answered your question. This is Steve Harris for the Extra Panel. Please, you can check out all of the stuff I have done with Jack, all of my free classes that you can listen to with just one tap on your smartphone. The, there's a built-in player on the web on the website. You can listen to it all when you're driving, commuting, or working. For all you new people, I highly suggest it. It is Stephen1234.com. Thank you, guys. Talk to you later. I kind of felt like that was, please justify my purchase of a used car that's really expensive. That's, I mean, it's kind of like when I get an email from someone about, you know, I already have a bunch of guns, but there's this one gun, and what if the zombie, like that. Like, almost felt like that's what the guy was asking, and maybe he was not, but, and I don't want to pick on anybody, but kind of felt like that. Justify my expenditure. And Steve ain't going to do that, neither would I. I have a, a really simple concept, though, with here with two is one and one is none. What are the odds that your car won't start and run on idle at any given time? Actually, they are quite low. And, and that it would absolutely coincide with the time that your power was out. That your, your car would just go kapusta and you'd have no power at home. I know EMP. Let's not go down the rabbit hole of that thing. Okay, And the answer is it's pretty low. So when you look at any system, what you look for are what are the points of failure and what are the most vulnerable points of failure. So as a well-engineered automobile that you use on a daily basis and keep up maintenance with and do all kinds of great stuff with, and whenever you notice something wrong with it, you take it and get it fixed because it's your only car, so I'm assuming you do that. Is that a likely point of failure to just be able to start and idle? Or is a you know $150 Chinese-made inverter a little more likely point of failure? Do inverters go bad? All of us that have them know occasionally inverters go bad. So the, the, the quickest, simplest, and most useful 
solution right now. Go buy another inverter. So if that inverter fails, you can swap inverters. And then everything else Steve said, I completely agree with. Um, I, when I heard $40,000, I'm like, oh, my God. You could get a decent used pickup truck and a whole house um, uh, gas, uh, natural gas generator and a small, um, like, you know, 7,500-watt gasoline pull-start Troy built still be under $20,000 installed with, you know, having a professionally installed whole house generator, all of that stuff. You have a, a truck, you have another vehicle that can run, you have a, a, a pull start generator, you have a whole house generator, one of them's portable, it can go in the truck, and you, you take $20,000 and put it in the bank. Just saying, man, don't look for a problem when you don't have one. Let's go ahead, and uh, I got one more. This one I'm going to take, and it's a very, very interesting question um, as far as I'm concerned because of what it immediately made me think of. It, it already exists, sort of. This comes from J.D. J.D. says, vote option of no confidence. Jack, I'm listening to episode 1773, and your comments about The voting of 50% and less reminded me of an idea I had a few years, I've had for a few years now. I believe that voting is useless and that my vote doesn't matter. But, in all capitals, I wish we had a separate voting option next to each candidate or next to each office we can vote for. No confidence. This is simply stated in meaning that the vote of no confidence means you have no confidence in anyone running for that office. And I believe that if it was a choice, it should have to be reported just as Democrat or Republican percentages are. No longer would the old standby comment be valid. I voted for the lesser of two evils. And maybe someday it would be counted as a percentage of vote that can change the elections. I.e., Republican 30%, yes. Democrat 30%, yes. No confidence, 60%. The office has to go back for re-voting. I know I'm holding on to a sliver of hope that voting still matters. Just a little mental masturbation, I guess, maybe. G uh, J.D. in West Virginia. Okay. I'm going to read something to you right now. This is from the official LP.org Libertarian Party platform. In order to grant voters a full range of choice in federal, state, and local elections, we propose the addition of the alternative, none of the above is acceptable to all ballots. We further propose that in the event that none of the above is acceptable, receives a plurality of votes in any election, either the elective office for this term should remain unfilled and unfunded, or there shall be a new election in which none of the losing candidates shall be eligible. Translation, if that existed in um, the presidential election this time around, your likely nominees, no matter what the TV tells you, are Sanders and, I'm sorry, uh, Trump and Clinton. And you didn't want either one of them, you could go and vote neither. None of the above. And if none of the above received a plurality of votes, in other words, it received more, uh, then, then the, the whole thing would have to be a do-over. We just, just have a do-over. Do you realize you'd be stuck with Obama? Did you? Did you realize it? A term limits. We wouldn't. We'd have no president. So the Speaker of the House would be interim president until such time as the new election was, was conducted. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I, I want to tell you that this is the revised Libertarian Party uh, platform that in the early 2000s, as I think many of you know, I was a very active member of the Libertarian Party. I actually ran for political office as a Libertarian uh, for the Texas State House. 
And at that time, the platform officially was that if any candidate failed to receive at least 50% of the vote, that it would be a do-over. So that to win an office, you had to get 50% of the vote or more. Now, that's not a problem in most elections now because there's only two candidates. Someone's getting 50%. But if there was a third party or none of the above, so what the libertarian position was, well, there should be a libertarian there, and maybe there should be some other people there, and there should still be this none of the above option. And then if you don't get at least half of the people with enough confidence in you to take the position, you you don't make it. So someone has to truly stand out as being worthy to be elected. And I guess they softened it with this newer version. Um, at the time, I thought this was a wonderful idea, although I did understand how it could cause a lot of problems and disruptions. I, I realized that it would at least make candidates have to actually try to be valid candidates rather than just be better than some other person that sucks. And then I realized it wouldn't work. I really did. I realized none of this stuff would work, that it is all mental masturbation. That right now, if people wanted to do this, they could. In many instances, there are third parties, and you know we, we should call them alternative parties, because at some ballots, you might even see two or three things other than Democrat or Republican. And yet, the American people don't vote that way. They never do. The ones that do generally vote for people that they really don't even agree with anyway. I heard people remember when remember Ralph Nader. It's like, yeah, I voted for Nader. Why? I didn't want any of the other guys. Okay. Um, do you know what the Green Party platform is? Yeah, a little bit. Do you agree with it? Not really. So conditioned are we that we should vote though that we would vote for someone we really don't want over someone we don't want just because we know the person we really don't want won't win anyway. But at least we think we've made a protest. No, I, I don't. I, I don't think this will work. I don't think the American people are at a point in history where they even understand how owned and controlled they are. I put out a link yesterday to the Snowden movie, the trailer on it anyway. It tells the story of Edward Snowden and who he was. For those who don't know, Snowden was in the middle of special forces. Um, training when he was injured to the point and he was running around with basically broken legs kind of faking it and eventually had to seek medical treatment and was told if you jump again you'll shatter your legs you'll never walk and uh, so he washed out of that and he went to the CIA and he was a very gifted person very very gifted uh, as far as academics and he was in a pretty high position that he was offered And the reason he told the American people what was going on is because, in his words, they didn't even know they had made the deal. So I put this trailer up, and a guy comments and says, Looks like good entertainment, but he's still a traitor. The government was conducting illegal, warrantless surveillance of the entire country. Illegal, warrantless surveillance of the entire country, the man told you it, and that makes him a traitor. If you think that way, you are programmed and controlled. And let me say this again, because I upset people when I say this. We are all, including me, programmed and controlled to a degree. The matrix is strong. The matrix is powerful. Every time I think I've cleared myself of the control, 
I find there's yet another level to achieve of clarity. And it becomes more difficult as you go. It's, it's, it's like an exponential resistance. And I think it's why I went from, you know, being the, this flag-waving, small-government Republican to, to like a minarchist libertarian in just a few years. But then it took three times as long to move from minarchist libertarian to anarchist philosophy. Twice as long, at least. Because the more you're asked to let go of, the more you feel like this can't work. This can't work. And you have to realize something. None of it's working. None of it's working. All of the things that, you're, that you've been promised the government would do, eradicate, etc., has failed. Government's uh, attempt, uh, no child left behind, has resulted in children coming out of high school that, that don't know and can't do jack diddly shit. Our attempt to make everybody super educated by forcing every child into college has created a, a, a class of what, what I consider to be, and this is not everybody, but a large group of educated idiots with an entitlement attitude expecting to just be handed a great job because they have a degree in some random crap. The war on drugs has put people who have no victims, no victims, and anything they've ever done, there is not a single person they've ever made a victim out of, and has put them in prison for multi-year sentences and sometimes longer. With three strikes laws, there are people who have never actually victimized anybody in a crime that are doing life in prison. But we have a war on drugs. The cartels are richer than they've ever been. Nothing works. It's all incremental. It's all subjective. So this concept that, well, it won't work, well, what is working? What is working? We've got to protect ourselves from terrorists. There's more terrorist activity in the world today than before the U.S. declared war on terror. There's more terrorist activity in the world today than there was on September 12th, the day after 9-11. In spite of billions of dollars and thousands and thousands of American lives and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of foreign citizens' lives. What's working about the war on terror? We have to protect our Constitution by voting for the right people. You have a government surveilling the whole of its people illegally And the man that tells the truth about it is branded a traitor, has members of our government calling for his execution, and nobody even really knows how bad what he let you know was going on really was. When I say nobody, I don't mean nobody. I mean the average person has no idea. The average person has no idea the depth of this. That's why I think this movie might be a good thing. Because it, because it makes it real for people. Though I thought, you know, People would get their shit together when they saw the Benghazi movie as well. And I don't know that they really have. We live in a world where what people want isn't security or liberty. What they want is comfort. Well, that's what they want. They want to be comfortable. Security is just a piece of that for them. If they feel relatively secure, then they're comfortable. Relatively secure. They, they don't they don't really think about it as making a, a choice between liberty and security. What they want is comfort. They want to be able to sit on their ass and not be bothered. They don't want to be told things that are uncomfortable, even if they're true. And even once they know them to be true, they'll still choose to believe a lie because it's more comfortable. 
the, the, the show that, that was referenced here by J.D. was a guy wrote an article called You've Got to Stop Voting. And he was going to speak in front of an activist group, and they said no because you don't support voting, so we can't have you here. So he wrote like a 27-part explanation of why it doesn't work and why it's foolish and why it's a mistake. And the, the leader of the, the group wrote him back and said, we're still not having you. Because while everything you've said is true and I agree with it, most people are more gut-led than intellect-led. In other words, you've made us uncomfortable and we don't like that. We'd prefer to go on with our movement believing in a lie rather than accepting the truth because the truth is uncomfortable. I don't think there's any way to amend the electoral system to make it work. I mean, I, I do think it's good the American people know how, how deceived they are. I do think that's the beauty of Sanders and Trump in this election. Both of them have just kind of peeled back the disgusting bandage and the gangrenous crap underneath it. Oh, the wound's doing really good. Oh, that's great. The cloudy. Whoa, 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 what was that? What was, what was that gangrenous crap there? Yeah, yeah. But I did, would it really matter? Would it really matter if we had to have third parties on the ballot? They'd still lose. They'd still lose. The, the, the way Republicans have managed to stay in league with Democrats is to promise just a little bit of shit. I, I don't think we're at a point in our history where people are ready to be responsible and to be uncomfortable and for things to be a little messy and out of control. Because See, that's what liberty is. Liberty's messy. That means that other people get to do shit you don't like and you don't get to stop them. As long as they're not hurting you. Even within a government, forget my anarchist beliefs here. Even within a governed society, if it's truly a liberty-oriented governed society with a proper government, a constitutional republic being run properly. I don't like what they're doing. No one gives a shit. Sorry. You don't get to do anything about it. But it upsets me. So what? No one cares. Don't look at it. But they're over there doing that. Don't care. But he's smoking an herb that's bad for him. Is he blowing smoke in your face? No. Then shut up. Then be quiet. I don't like that. Those people over there are saying things that hurt my feelings. Those people over there are saying things that are insulting. Really insulting. Really harsh. Really untrue. So? Unless it's actually hurting someone and your feelings being hurt isn't actually being hurt, then tough. That's what liberty looks like. Liberty looks like people doing things that you'd prefer they not do. And in return, you get to do things that other people would prefer that you not do. And our people would prefer comfort to that. That's what they would prefer. I wish it wasn't so. But what that means is you have to decide for yourself how you will build your own life. And you have to ignore this other crap, this static over here. If you want to go have a cathartic experience 
and vote once every two years in primaries and, 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 and general elections and once every four years in presidential elections and primaries, and you want to do that, go ahead. I won't fault you for it. I won't say there's anything. You're not a bad person for voting or that you shouldn't vote. I'll never tell you that. I'll tell you that it is catharsis. Your vote doesn't count. You are mathematically more likely to die in your car on the way to go vote than you are to influence even an election for the dog catcher at your local level. Truly. But if you want to do it and you feel that it's the right thing to do, then you're, you're the, the, the anarchists that say you're immoral and you're, you're contributing to the harm of others, you're not. They'll do it with you or without you. If something doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. Period. And for, for, for people to take the attitude of something doesn't matter and then say, but if you do it, you're wrong, it's kind of disingenuous as far as I'm concerned. It, it, it might sound disheartening, but it's not. When, when you accept the fact that you're not going to be able to change things, that you were never going to be able to change anyway, it's, it's liberating. That's how you can find liberty in all of this. Because you're carrying chains and weight of concerns for things that you do not have influence over, you never did and you were tricked into believing that you did so that you would be controlled by the very people that you oppose. But when you accept you do not control these things, you, you, you do not have influence on these things, then you say to yourself, well then, what do I have influence on? And you find the things that really matter, you build a business, you teach a child, you influence a friend or a neighbor, You prepare yourself for tough times, and you stand through them. You grow your own food. You pursue a dream. Whatever it is for you. My dreams and your dreams are not the same, most likely. But you do what is right for yourself, what's right for your family. You follow your own moral and ethical code. And you choose liberty in your own lifetime, because you know it's the only place you really can make that choice. It's a very, very empowering thing. But remember, remember how it works. It's the five stages of grief. People get caught in bargaining because it starts with denial and then anger. And that's, where, that's, that's, that's the Trump effect. That's the Sanders effect, anger. And then bargaining. Bargaining, well, what if we change this? What if we do that? What if we do really get the right people in? Bargaining, bargaining, bargaining. And the reason people hang on the bargaining for so long is do you know what comes between bargaining and acceptance? Depression. Depression. It's very somber. It's very depressing to realize that this was all, it was all a scam. All, all this time that I thought, all this energy that I put in, all this effort that I exuded, all these, th these things I worried about, all the times I talked to people and told them what we needed to do, all of this was for nothing. Well, let me see if I can put you through your depression a little bit faster and get to acceptance. It wasn't for nothing. It's called growth. It's called growth. I saw a video recently where a guy said the one thing his students remember more than anything else is his story about the lobster. And the lobster gets to a certain size. It can't grow anymore because of its shell. And it becomes very, very uncomfortable. And that causes it to molt its shell and be vulnerable for a few days before a new shell hardens and it can get larger. But if, doctors had, if lobsters had doctors that could give it a pill so it wasn't uncomfortable anymore, it would never grow. Growth is uncomfortable. And it's worth it. It's worth it. The one big problem I think we have in America that I would define as our largest problem in America today is that we go from being children to adults 
and we cease to grow. We're told so perfectly by the machine that you do this, 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 and this, and then, Johnny, you are a grown-up, you get a job, you get a house, you get a car, and you work until you retire. So when we get to that, that plateau, as long as we're comfortable, as long as we're comfortable, we cease growth. If you're uncomfortable, be grateful. Because when you're uncomfortable, that means you're growing. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Go on.